Coming up on this week in computer hardware, AMD's Epic 7002. This new server CPU is a beast, and it changes everything. Samsung Galaxy Note 10 Plus, Zenfone 6, and more all coming up next on Twitch. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twitch. This is Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, episode 528, recorded on August 8th, 2019. AMD Epic 7002, this changes everything. Welcome to Twitch, This Week in Computer Hardware, Twitch weekly show that aims to bring you, yes, ladies and gentlemen, hardware news. We love desktops, laptops, mobile. We love processors, GPUs, and I promise we're practically going to have no Ryzen 3000 information in this episode because, as a friend of mine noted, we have beat it to death at this point, and we are waiting <laughs> for some new developments to be able to beat it to death some more in the future. The beginning of the snark and the snickering you hear in the background is Mr. Sebastian Peake editor-in-chief PCPer.com, who may or may not be running benchmarks in the background right now, possibly involving a GPU or a CPU, or maybe he's just running them for the joy of it. Or is that just a Ed, screensaver? Uh, screensavers? What year is this, Patrick? Actually, I was having a discussion about this last night because a member of our staff apparently runs not only a screensaver, but one of those 3D screensavers from the early 2000s, which if you want I to think- reduce... The lifespan of your monitor, by all means, run a screensaver yeah. 24-7. And his screensaver power draw, by the way, from the wall is about 300 watts because it's it's ramping up <laughs> that video card. So I'm like, what are you doing? This is this is idle time. And then then it ramps up. So And then it ramps up. Speaking of ramping up and AMD CPU news that is not Ryzen 3000 news, uh, AMD Epic 7002 Series Rome. This thing is kind of a beast. And when I say kind of, I mean, holy crap, look at the size of this thing. If you go over to uh, servethehome.com, they have the launch of the AMD Epic 7002 series. And uh, Patrick Kennedy notes the last two, quote, I should say, quote, the last two digit represented is the second generation product formerly coned in Rome. And uh, this is... uh, this is, as Mr. Kennedy notes, something that everybody on the planet uh, has been looking forward to. Quote, vendors, customers, ISVs, even teams designing hardware for future space missions. There is a common theme, giddiness over Rome. What? Uh, uh, I mean, you know, this is people get excited about processors. People occasionally yes. even get excited about servers. Um Mr. Kennedy is, like the people he's discussing in this article, absolutely giddy uh, about this one. And, you know, it's pretty crazy, right? There's 19 parts from 8 cores to 64 cores. The largest parts, the 64-core parts, are running something in the neighborhood of 32 billion transistors, uh, which is to say significantly more transistors than even the most complicated GPUs right now. Um, the I.O. die is the center of the server. Uh, quote, this chip is the first step in disaggregating compute memory storage and other I.O. and servers. And uh, other vendors, i.e. Big Blue, will follow this paradigm shift. Um, the CPU core is no longer the center of the server, which is a more modern systems approach. Twice the performance per socket in mainstream applications as Intel has throughout the range up to the Xeon Platinum. Um, man, PCI Gen 4 
Uh, Intel still at PCI Gen 3. That means you're talking about uh, AMD's Epic 7002 having twice the bandwidth per lane. I mean, it gets crazy. Uh, if if you have to move staggering amounts of data and process the information, um, this is a big deal. And I don't think Intel is remotely ready with a response to this. No, and they're they're behind on desktop. Obviously, they've they've had some rather well publicized issues with ten nanometer, and typically the server side of things has been about a generation behind desktop with Intel. So you're mm-hmm. still dealing with some kind of aging Xeon parts on Intel's side until they come out with their new products. And we're going to see 10 nanometer on desktop, I assume, by the end of this. I think it's the beginning of next year. I know we have mobile parts coming as early as, I think, the end of this month with right. Ice Lake. But then desktop is, is a the next year thing. And then I assume at some point they're going to have to do something. It's whether or not they're competing on price, if they if there are price drops across the board, and one of those things that I don't fully understand because I'm not on that side of things is like list price, tray price versus what is actually being charged by Intel when they're selling these servers because they're often selling complete servers. They're not necessarily just selling chips, or they might be selling in massive quantities. Mm-hmm. to system integrators like the actual manufacturers of these servers. One of the really interesting things about this Epic 2 launch is, or this is, I guess this is Epic 3, since they've, they've gone from Zen to Zen Plus to now Zen 2, like we saw with desktop. But right. they, they brought a lot of partners on stage. They were showing a lot of strength where when first-generation Epic came out, they did not have that. They They announced it. It looked great had some significant advantages over what Intel had at the time, but nobody was really calling and they didn't have Mm -hmm. like, you know, these partnerships, which are very valuable on the server side because it's not quite like the enthusiast side where you're going out and parting it all out. Although, of course, we said that last night and then immediately a new egg listing for the top (laughs) end part showed up, which shows out of stock. But I mean, the same thing happened with that crazy Intel 56 core part. Right. That then showed up on Newegg for like thirty three hundred dollars the next day, but it, it, just to get a, a an idea of what this launch means, uh, and page seven and eight of this massive serve the home review, and they had they had the product ahead of time, and they were doing some benchmarking against their Intel systems, and they do a lot of server specific workloads. Of course, it's just, it's serve the home, and significantly faster CPU performance, of course. When you're talking about multi-threaded applications, but just in general, just the performance boost, single and multi-thread, is phenomenal. And one of the most impressive things about this is what they're doing with power consumption. Because as, as exciting as it is to see huge wins in performance, at the end of the day, what is the total cost of ownership of this? And they're talking like 50 plus percent lower total cost of ownership versus similar performing Intel systems. And uh, I think it's page nine that has a nice chart there. Yeah. Because Xeon, not even the top end Xeon, Xeon Platinum 8280, uh, max observed power draw is somewhere around 425, 430 watts, if I'm looking at this chart correctly. And then Mm -hmm. Epic, and of course the 9200 Platinum is the high end part. Epic, the 7742, 
is under 350 watts. So that's that's a big drop in total power for a significantly more powerful platform. So it's on multiple levels. You're getting more performance per watt and a significantly lower wattage as well, which makes obviously a huge difference when you're scaling this up to many, many multiple instances and you're going across uh, multi-socketed platforms because they're, they're, they're focusing on single and, of course, multi-socket here. But they're, they're doing things that Intel just can't do, which is obviously they're on 7 nanometer. They have the power savings, a much improved CPU architecture as we've seen on the desktop side. Uh, and then they have 128 lanes of PCIe 4.0. And as if, I mean, they could get by with 64 lanes of similar performance. If, if you look at what 4.0 can actually do on the server side, you could basically take existing Gen 3 by 4 and move it down to, to two lanes of PCIe 4. There's a lot you can do, but they've cr- created a product with a tremendous amount of expandability and by jumping to fourth gen they're just so far like the lead just seems almost insurmountable at this point so it'll be very interesting to see what intel comes out with but right now intel absolutely dominant on the server side 90 plus percent market share so if if this erodes that and they continue making inroads on the desktop side at least with enthusiasts i mean enthusiasts Sales of uh, Ryzen parts has been very strong. I've seen some speculation that it's it's up to about 60% of, of desktop processors sold in the last quarter might have been the new Ryzen parts, if you're looking at just Ryzen versus 9th gen Intel stuff, the current stuff on desktop. But Intel, you know, they we won't get into this, but Intel still dominates on mobile, and they have been dominating on the server side. So I'm very curious to see what the landscape looks like in a year's time with these out there in force. I think the $64,000 question here is how well positioned AMD is to take advantage of this. Um, you know, Patrick Kennedy, who's been running serve the home for a long time, uh, you know, is in a position to have talked to a lot of people, talked to a lot of vendors, talked to a lot of possible consumers, and they seem incredibly interested in moving to this part. And if AMD can take advantage of the simple fact that they have a vastly superior product in terms of performance or potential performance, um, that's a huge, huge opportunity. And it's it's something that at the very least it should, uh, you know, it should put Intel in a position where they have to reduce the cost of their server parts to their clients or to their customers uh, to be more competitive with this. I'm really curious to see how this rolls out, um, to say the very least yeah. on that one. It's, uh, man, it's a, a pretty serious, uh, a pretty serious opportunity for AMD. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the specs though, you know, I'm, I'm side-eyeing here looking at them again and it's just, <laughs> you know, the new architecture is kind of fascinating you know, the number of lanes, the bandwidth on the lanes, this is something that people dealing with big data have to be, well, as Mr. Kennedy describes, they are pretty much giddy uh, and looking forward to this. Oh, my goodness. Galaxy Unpacked event. The Note 10 and the Note 10 Plus are here. Um, they have fast processors, big screens, and all sorts of other stuff. Are you excited about the latest Note? Are you a Note enthusiast? Do you still beloved? Are you beloved of the full phablet experience? Uh, I don't, not so much. I mean, there was a time when it was intriguing to look at what at that point were massive, like five and a half inch 
devices, six inch devices. Right. But it's kind of funny. It's a, the the Galaxy has since it has a Galaxy and a Galaxy Plus in the last few generations. You have like the ten and the ten plus right. currently. You already have that bigger device. And mm-hmm. I was looking at this and thinking, am I crazy or did they not used to have two sizes of the Note? I thought the Note was the big phone. And now they have a Note and a Note Plus, which seems to sort of cannibalize some of their Galaxy 10 Plus sales. It Possibly. Um, but I mean, it, it has the S Pen. So I guess it's for the people who you know. maybe want a little bit of a smaller phone with an S Pen. They'll be happy. Well, it, it's funny we're we were showing the the uh, if you're watching the video you're seeing the Verge uh, review of the new phone and as they put it the Note 10 Plus is the Note you're used to um, the Note 10 uh, is ba- is basically a stylus and more power stuffed into something that that you know looks a lot like the regular uh, the Galaxy S10 um, I was also fascinated. Uh, 949 for the Note 10. They have one configuration, 8 gigs of RAM, 256 gigabytes of storage. The 10 Plus uh, for $1,100, you can get 12 gig of RAM, 256 gigabytes of storage. And for $1,200, uh, you can get 512 gigabytes of storage with your 12 gigabytes of RAM. I think 12 gigabytes of RAM is overkill even for this phone unless you're doing crazy video or, or creative art stuff. Um, yeah. You know, I would certainly like to have at least 6 gigabytes on my next phone. I have dreams. Um I think I'm going to be a minimum of four and preferably six on my next phone. So I find myself running a lot of applications and, and all the Android experts I talk to have basically told me having more memory is going to make switching between apps a significantly less traumatic experience. Um, I love the fact that they've got the little tiny spot for the camera at the top and there's no notch because I don't enjoy like or suffer notch as well. Um, I also thought it was interesting that uh, August 23rd is when uh, these start shipping and then on the 23rd, you can start pre-ordering um, a Note 10 uh, 5 gigabyte, or excuse me, not 5 gigabyte, 5G version that's going to be, quote, exclusive to Verizon for a limited time, uh, writes Dieter Bond up on the verge. Um, not much information on that 5G version. It's, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting to read the review because Mr. Bond, who's been looking at these phones for a long time, um, Samsung is betting on three things, right, to justify the Note lineup. Build quality, that new smaller size, and a classic pile of new Samsung software features. So, you know, a lot of these specs, I mean, one, if you want a pen, this is your phone. Um, ton of, you know, phones now have uh, good AMO LED screens. Um, they've got a wide-angle camera, 16 megapixels, pixel F2.2. Uh, the main camera is 12 megapixel F1.5 and f 2.4 dual apertures, uh, optical image stabilization. There's a telephone ca- telephoto camera running at 12 megapixels, uh, f2.1, 45 degree. The selfie camera is 10 megapixels. Um, it's interesting to kind of look at all of the options on this. They have the in-screen fingerprint sensor. Um, that Note 10 Plus, that's a, basically a 7-inch screen. It's a 6.8-inch screen, 3040 by 1440 pixels, 4300 milliamp-hour battery life. Um, you know, and no headphone jack. Um, they also exactly. got rid of the Bixby yeah. button, which I'm kind of in th- <laughs> I'm down yeah. with getting rid of the Bixby button. Um, you know, they don't have battery life estimates. Um, the Note 10's got a 3500 milliamp hour battery. The uh, the Note 10 Plus 4300 milliamp hour battery, as I mentioned before, and that screen at the resolution it's running. Um, you know. In terms of traditional cell phone battery performance, that's going to be a tough one, even with a 4,300 milliamp hour battery. I'm very, very curious about that one. Um, 
you know, some interesting video stabilization and effects are built into the video recording. Um, one of the things that uh, Mr. Bond got excited about was DeX, which is their desktop interface uh, that allows you to sort of use your Android device, in this case, the, the Note or the Note Plus, um, as a desktop when you plug a monitor into it. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, it's, uh, you know, something that never worked well, uh, but they seem to be at least moving uh, in the right direction. <laughs> Um, you know, this is technically not their full review, but, you know, phablets aren't dead, but they aren't a huge part of the market. Or you could say that all of the phones kind of became phablet or had phablet options. But people who, who love their phablets, they love these things. Note users are very passionate in my experience. They yes. you can pry their S pin away from them. They're cold, dead hands. Something, some words <laughs> to that effect that I didn't actually uh, say correctly. You may have my phablet when you pry my cold, dead fingers from it, as I think the quote you were looking for, Mr. Heston. Yeah. Um, doesn't work with Gear VR. Uh, you know, uh, as, uh, as The Verge also notes, uh, phone-based VR seems to be on the decline, at least for everybody but Apple. Uh, drum roll here, but when you look at the cost of the Oculus Rift versus having a slightly inferior experience, uh, I should say the Oculus, I don't know. Uh, there's so many Oculus options at this point. Um you know, the, the quest actually was the one I was thinking of. Um, you know, when you, when you look at the cost of an Oculus one at $400, it probably for most people makes more sense. Um, uh, in entry, yeah, basically the entry level Oculus quest is $400 and a 64 gigabyte version. Uh, it probably makes more sense for people who are enthusiastic about VR to do that and get the badass uh, controls, touch controllers than to, you know, plug a, Mediocre adapter onto a super powerful phone to have an inferior, uh, <laughs> you know, interface or lack of decent controllers. So uh, that that makes sense to me uh, that they're not really bothering to do Gear VR with that. Um, man, uh, 5.7 inch Pixel 4 and 6.3 inch Pixel 4 XL will have 90 hertz OLED displays, rear camera, 12 megapixel, meg, megapixel. I can't say megapixel today. Sensor with phase detect autofocus and 16 megapixel telephoto lens. Uh, 95 Google did a nice write-up on that. Um, obviously, we are ramping up to incredible and enthusiastic uh, pixel reviews. And what's interesting is the gentleman that's been running the pixel division uh, is actually just moved up to another position higher up inside of uh, Google. And I don't think we'll no longer be overseeing the pixel phone lineup. But, uh, you know, Google's basically confirmed the physical appearance and some of the, the top features on the Google Pixel 4 and 4XL. Uh, and the rumor mill is keeping excited about, uh, you know, putting in more and more and more and more thoughts on uh, what could potentially be included <laughs> in the next generation yeah. Pixel. I'm looking uh, forward to 90 hertz. I, I think the more, and, and that's been done obviously, but Google bringing that to the Pixel is interesting. I, I think the appearance is interesting too because it's it's basically every right. render of an iPhone 11, but right. that's what it looks like. So we're I'm sure we're going to see these giant square triple camera plus flash clusters on the back of phones for a little while now. Yeah. 
I think they are. It's interesting to kind of think about. Um, you know, it's also going to be a premium phone, most likely at a very premium price. Um, and, you know, OnePlus is doing some good stuff. HTC is doing some good stuff. Uh, you had a link for the Zenfone 6, uh, yeah. which is actually... A you can actually buy it now in the United States for $499. Um, should anybody be buying it? Unlocked. And look at the specs. I mean, we were just talking about the Samsung phones. Right. Very similar specs, except a significantly more impressive camera. So you have a Snapdragon 855 again. It starts with 6 gigs of RAM, and you can move up to 8. And the camera, though, it's a 48-megapixel Sony sensor. And it, it, there's a secondary sensor that's like your... Um, I don't know if it's wide angle or telephoto on this one, actually, but hmm. it's it's all on the back. There's no notch. There's no cutout. So to use right. the front facing camera, there's a mechanism that actually sort of flips up the camera when you need it. And that's it's interesting. It's like it's cool. It's like a tech demo. And there's some some safeguards in place. Like if you drop your phone, there's a free fall sensor that will quickly snap the camera back into place to protect it or it hits right. the ground. So there's some interesting stuff they've done with it too. Like it can automatically move around and track people's faces or you can set it to do like a panorama shot for you. But it's, but as a phone though, I think to hit 499, they, they didn't use AMOLED and it's only a FHD plus display. Although I say mm -hmm. that and so was the new Note 10. Not right. the plus. The plus is still QHD plus, but the new Note 10 is only FHD+. And in fact, if you've had an, a Samsung phone recently, and I was using the Galaxy 9 Plus last year, it defaults out of the box to an FHD+, mm -hmm. mode, even if you get the QHD display for battery savings. So, right. you know, that's 400 pixels per inch is, is nothing to sneeze at. And a lot of these phones are hitting that anyway. Well above, you know, the 326, I think, that Apple said when they created the Retina iPhone 4. Or <laughs> <laughs> well above that. You can't see the pixels. I'm just right. very curious about this phone. Like $400. I mean, the first Zen phone, in fact, the only Zen phone I ever personally used was the Zen phone 2. That was around $200 unlocked and just tremendous value for what you got. And it was in the, right. the days of Intel desperately trying to get into the mobile space. So they're basically giving away the CPUs, so that's why the whole system was so inexpensive. I think they were probably doing something to sweeten the deal for Asus to sell that for one ninety nine. I would imagine. Right. It, Here it, we it are. Would, it would. Yeah. Well, it's also right. You're you're looking at you know four ninety nine for a sixty four gigabyte version. Um, one hundred twenty eight gigabyte version is one hundred and twenty. Excuse me. One hundred twenty eight gigabyte version is five hundred forty nine dollars, um, which is an alarmingly fair uh, price for you know, doubling the memory capacity. And maybe they're doing that because a lot of flagship phones have 256 gigabyte options. Um, you know, but you're talking about some pretty impressive specs like, you know, 600 nit clean brightness uh, on the screen, Gorilla Glass 6. Um, I'm kind of curious to see how well in real life uh, the camera works because not just um, the sort of, it will, you know, retract itself before it can smash on the sidewalk mode, um, but you can actually adjust the angle of the camera uh, from zero to 180 degrees to to help you sort of get the angle on a shot, which is kind of fascinating. It does automatic panorama. That flip camera will actually uh, the stepper motor in the flip camera will do a 180 degree panorama. It does yeah. mo motion tracking. Um, you know, look at the battery. Uh, I'm always, yeah, 
The battery 5, is a uh, you know, milliamp hour battery. You know, that alone is super tempting. The other thing is kind of crazy, right? Uh, you know, dual stereo speakers, which if you like to irritate people uh, on the BART uh, or, or on your local commuter line uh, by blasting your favorite YouTube channel uh, while people are surrounded you and not using headphones. Um, but they, uh, they have support for... Uh, DTSX Ultra, 24-bit, 192 kilohertz, high-res audio, Aptex, Aptex HD, um, DTS headphone uh, X7.1, which I'm not super excited about, but uh, uh, dual internal microphones uh, with their proprietary noise reduction technology. Um, you know, that's uh, there's a lot of nice stuff going on in here. Um, yeah, you know, not super excited that the it's Gorilla Glass. Uh, even the it's a glass back, even though it's Gorilla Glass six, that still makes me super uptight. Um, because, uh, glass and me do not, uh, traditionally have a lot of luck working together. Um, yeah, it's exciting. Uh, 64 gigabytes, uh, is unlimited availability. Um, you can kind of pre-order it. The, uh, the 128 gigabyte version is available now. Um, I can't seem to find out whether or not it has a micro SD slot, but I uh, do not oh. believe so. Oh. It could be wrong. It could be in the SIM tray, but yeah. I, I don't remember seeing that feature listed. Right. Snapdragon 855, 6 gigs of memory. Um, there's a lot of good stuff going on here. Um, I think the battery life should also be pretty awesome, too. I hope the battery life is awesome, given the screen resolution and the size of that battery. So, As long as you're not using that flip-up camera too much. Because I'm sure if you were just constantly <laughs> doing that to show off, you might deplete the battery. But, and, and this is another, a, 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 it could be a really great phone for somebody who's not really into taking selfies or doesn't use like a, a Skype app or something on their phone. Because the camera will just stay in the back and then you have that totally unbroken 92% screen to body ratio on the front. So, and I do like the fact that they have those the little bit of a chin so you can still have those front firing speakers, which is something I really missed from my Nexus 6, which had, you know, that was right. an older phone, significant bezels on it. Good by those standards, but, you know, that was 2016. And how things have changed in three years, now we have phones that are virtually all screen with little cutouts like the Note phones. So It's funny, uh, Android, uh, Android Central uh, has a review, and they're talking about getting two days of use from a full charge. Uh, wow. Phone works over Quick Charge 4. Uh, takes over two hours to fully charge the battery, but a 30-minute charge gets you 40%, uh, which is good for a full day's usage. That's uh, Harish Janalagata. And uh, Harish, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name. I will try to make sure I know that next time. Um, you know, that review just came out yesterday. Um, you know... Quote, I used it hundreds of times. The flip camera module, I used it hundreds of times over the course of the month to take selfies or panorama shots, and it is just as reliable as day one. That said, I'm starting to notice a slight wobble with the sensor, even when it's not engaged. The motor itself still uh -oh. engages smoothly, and I haven't run into any issues, but I am worried about long-term durability. Uh, there are something like 13 gears to enable these smooth rotating motions, and that's a, that's a lot of complexity in something that size. Yeah. Um, not the best panel. Uh, in the price segment. He didn't feel that the color was particularly uh, great or true on that one. Um, not a huge fan of the uh, quality of the selfies mm. on the 48 megapixel. 
Interesting. Quote, I, I got a lot of decent images out of the Zenfone 6, and there wasn't any distortion from the wide-angle lens. However, low-light shots in general left a lot to be desired, with colors looking washed out and lots of noise. Um, that's mm. uh, not entirely surprising to me, um, because so much... Um, and it's interesting, because he's used the sensor that's in that, the uh, IMX586 and other cameras. Um the sensor and the number of megapixels or the, the number of pixels you have are just the beginning, and the processing makes a huge difference to the overall quality of the phone, especially when you're dealing with low light and uh, noise reduction on that one. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's an interesting idea. So you know, he's you know his his uh, consensus. Uh, if you want. If you want a great camera, you'll want to pick up the 400. You know what? Go to androidcentral.com and read the review. Uh, <laughs> I am so sorry. How dare I possibly take traffic from someone who's out there taking names and kicking ass? Androidcentral.com is the place to go for that review. Um, I am so sorry. I will the, say uh, real quick, because you, cause you mentioned something about the photos being a bit washed out. I think that mm-hmm. If you're used to a Samsung phone, you're used to everything being like the post processing on images there. It seems like it always boosts the whites, uh, almost to the point of being blown out, depending on the lighting. And things look a lot more vivid by default. Kind of that more real than real Kodak thing. Like I used to run a photo lab many years ago when we were still doing 35 millimeter film, and Kodak's send away 35 millimeter processing that they offered. And there was like an enhanced photo option and people would check that and they got used to this hyper saturated look to photos so that they would see the photos that we were producing in the lab. They're like, these look really washed out. Like, well, that's what you took. This is what your camera and lens can do. But, you know, <laughs> we would just have to up the saturation on the computer before we printed them out. But it's like iPhones, they take great pictures. If you have great lighting, they take very natural, neutral looking pictures. Samsung phones take much better pictures in low light. They do a lot of post-processing. And my Nexus 6 had a Sony sensor. That was the last bigger sensor I had, I think, in an Android phone. And that took absolutely astonishing photos in bright sunlight outside and really struggled indoors and video indoors in anything other than perfect lighting. I was trying to use that phone when my son was born, taking pictures of a toddler crawling or a baby crawling across the floor in modest lighting looked like snow like it was just noise <laughs> when i looked at it later on the tv so it's there's trade-offs with all these sensors it would and that's why the pixel i think gets so much uh so many accolades Love. because it's, it does so well in low light yeah and that's 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 a that's a function of having and applying not just having the resources but actually expending the resources on developing the firmware and perfecting that um, which a yeah. lot of vendors cannot be bothered or do not have the resources to do uh, two quick notes on this um, it does actually I found the the full list of specs uh, up at the Asus uh, website for this it does have a micro SD card um, Ooh, okay so uh, you know, it's not currently for sale that I know of in the United States, but there will be a 256 gigabyte version. But uh, there is a micro SD card available for this one. Um, and the other thing is, uh, if you do buy one of these, be very, very careful about uh, the software updates. Um, Notebook check, XDA developers and others have noted that, uh, quote, I'm going to quote notebook check here. Asus issues fatal software update for some Zenfone 6 units offers motherboard replacement as a solution. Um, oh, 
That's so, yeah, they, they, uh, you know, the upside is they have an almost stock Android experience. Um, but, uh, a software update has caused quote, some motherboards to malfunction resulting in crashes, reboots, boot loops, or dead devices. So early adopters, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. So it does have micro SD card slot, which I'm always a huge fan of. Oh my goodness! Um, we'll talk about the uh, the exciting news from Apple uh, in just a moment. But I want to take it if you. I suspect if if you're listening to This Week in Computer Hardware, you're a fan, you're subscribed, you want to make sure you get each and every episode as soon as it comes out. Uh, we really appreciate, we truly appreciate you listening to this podcast. Uh, without you, there's not much point because Sebastian and I, we could call each other and talk for an hour or two. Um, Kevin, our long-suffering producer, uh, would not be long-suffering anymore because he wouldn't have to listen to us blather about the finer points of technology and he wouldn't listen to us rejecting his incredibly punny uh, suggestions for titles. Um, his life would be easier. However, if you are a fan, uh, just remember, right, it takes a team of hosts, producers, editors, engineers, and support staff to get our content from the internet, from our homes, from the cameras and microphones we're talking into and looking at, into your face or your ears, depending on how you watch or listen to the show. Um, our podcasts, they're free. They're ad-supported. So the easiest thing you can do to help the network is to subscribe to this show and all your favorite twit.tv podcasts. Subscribing means you're going to get each new episode the moment it publishes. You won't miss one, and it'll be ready to listen or watch as soon as you're ready to watch or listen to it. Thank you for listening and remember to subscribe in your favorite podcatcher or visit twit.tv slash subscribe for more details. Thank you. We appreciate y'all being out there and joining us with our weekly conversation about hardware. Um, hey, and I appreciate you too because otherwise I would just be talking to Patrick and <laughs> I mean, what's the reward in that? We need an audience. Nothing. I want to feel, I want to feel like I'm part of something bigger then, well, you know, Patrick, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to make it sound like no, that. No. You know, I enjoy our phone calls. No, you did. It's okay. But I rarely record them and I almost never broadcast them afterwards. So except for that one, this is a valuable <laughs> service. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, Craig Lloyd's got a great article up on iFixit.com. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, iFixit has been an advertiser in the past on the show. They may be an advertiser in the future. Uh, so let me declare that. But, uh, as you know, we occasionally get snarky and irritated when companies make it harder to take care of your devices yourself. I'm going to quote Mr. Lloyd directly. By activating a dormant software lock on the U.S. iPhones, Apple is effectively announcing a drastic new policy. Only Apple batteries can go on iPhones and only they can install them. Uh so irritating. Uh, essentially, what happens if you put a third-party battery in, if you if you put a non-iPhone uh, battery in, if someone other than Apple uh, puts a battery in there, even if it is essentially the same exact part that you would get via Apple, um, you are going to get a message in settings, battery, battery health uh, that says, uh, you know, you need service. And service in in the universe, if you're watching the video right now, you can see the battery health. Uh, unable to verify this iPhone has a genuine Apple battery. Health information not available for this battery. So it doesn't shut the phone down. Um, but essentially, uh, if you don't use an Apple Genius or an Apple authorized service provider, 
Um, you're never going to get battery health and they're going to make it sound like something's wrong and your life is going to end. Um, and it's funny. So even if you're using a recycling an Apple battery from another phone, you are going to get um, this service message. Uh, I'm going to quote uh, Mr. Lloyd again. The only way around this is, you guessed it, paying Apple money to replace your iPhone battery for you. Uh, and, uh, you know, their diagnostic software is going to reset the service indicator, but they're not going to let anybody but themselves and Apple authorized service providers have access to it. So... Claim. So sad. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. Oh, look. Yeah. And and hey, to Apple's credit, they 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 no longer have the largest stockpile of billions. They're down to what 109 billion dollars as of last week uh, in terms of cash that has been acquired. Uh, iPhone sales are no longer dipping. You know, I, I could snark here, but you know, this is. Uh, as iFixit puts it, this is a user hostile choice. Uh, as somebody who has had to replace several screens on iPhones uh, and and deal with what I will affectionately refer to as a somewhat less than impressive structural uh, integrity, uh, <laughs> some of the less than impressive structural integrity choices uh, made by my friends over at Apple. Um, you know, uh, it, it's irritating that they only want these repaired by themselves. Um, you know. And, and, you know, iFixit says this service indicator is the equivalent of a check oil light that only a Ford dealership can reset, even if you change the oil yourself. Um, you know, this is annoying. Uh, you know, I would also say that this is, uh, uh, you know, uh, this is kind of part of a larger um, active obnoxiousness by Apple because uh, one of the things the article also covers is that uh, with iOS 10, they no longer allow third-party battery health apps information on battery details. You can no longer get information on cycle counts, uh, which is essentially the thing used to determine whether or not the battery is is getting closer to its end of life. Um, so, you know, it's irritating. It's really, really... Really, really annoying, um, and I don't know what else to say about that. So, you know, thanks, Apple. Enjoy your money. <laughs> I don't know. I find it frustrating when when uh, companies like Apple make it more difficult to maintain and continue to use your products. It is what it is. Uh, you found, much to my joy, a mini ITX motherboard with the 570 chipset which is an incredibly rare thing as we discussed <laughs> or perhaps <laughs> not as earlier. rare perhaps not as rare as micro atx which is like the forgotten form factor but yes Seriously. i mean there are obviously a lot fewer mini itx boards for these amd platforms than there are atx boards but yeah this this is kind of a weird product imagine just for our audio listeners imagine a mini ITX motherboard for the X570 platform with four mounting holes for an Intel cooler around the CPU socket instead of the traditional AMD retention bracket where you clip the you know the thing to both sides of it. And I think 
The reason for this was this particular layout they went with is a very Intel-like layout. They didn't have space for AMD's retention system. There's a heatsink right above the CPU socket. There's another one right below where the chipset is, and these chipsets are predominantly actively cool. There's a little fan in there, and it's a clever workaround. Like, hey, we can't really do the board we want to do unless we throw an Intel, you know, bracket on there. And what's interesting about it is they are publishing their own list of compatible coolers. So right now it has a bunch of the Corsair all-in-one liquid coolers on it. It has the many of the popular Noctua coolers. I'm sure most would be compatible as long as they fit around the CPU socket and, and the ubiquitous NHL9i is among those listed. So if you already had one of those, say say you, you've been doing small form factor with an Intel CPU and you're really, really drawn to the new Ryzen processors, then you could just take that L9i over to an AMD board and just use the exact same cooler as before. So it's, it's a... Uh, I don't know, it's just kind of a weird, interesting product. And oh, another thing about this board, it has Thunderbolt 3. Very few AMD boards you're going to find will have Thunderbolt 3. They'll have USB, you know, Gen 2 Type-C ports, but this is full-on Thunderbolt. So quite a bit more available bandwidth there. This could be, maybe this could be the start of the ultimate small form factor Hackintosh. On an AMD CPU, <laughs> if you could even do that, I know that most Hackintoshers are on Intel. Uh, back when I actually tried to do it years ago, I did it on an AMD system. But so yeah, I mean, that's the uh, what is this? It's the ASRock X570 Phantom Gaming ITX TB3. Just rolls off the tongue. And I, I, I'm it's, tempted. Um, it's. Have you seen the price tag? Are you still tempted? It's uh, Although, not as painful as it might be. Yeah, we'll two thirty nine. I'll be honest with you. That's not that bad. If if you're if you're you know if you're looking for a thirty nine hundred X, as near as we can tell, nobody has them. Um, thirty nine fifty is not going to come out until September. Thirty seven hundred X has been consistently available at Newegg, and if you have a Micro Center store near you, you can pick one up directly there. Um, I'm probably going to hold off uh, until I do a desktop build around that uh, Ryzen three thousand series. Um, to get that at the moment, uh, for a 3700X, a B450 should give me everything I need uh, because of the thermal constraints of the mini ITX platform I'm going to be building on. But when it comes time to do that 3900X or 3950X, then we will discuss 570 in glorious and obnoxious detail for the sheer unbridled joy of it. Um, speaking of sheer unbridled joy, uh, which is everyone's response to LEDs. Yes. <laughs> Um, this is actually kind of fun. NZXT uh, came out with their Hue 2 Ambient RGB lighting kit back in March. And, uh, uh, you know, you covered the announcement on that one, which is essentially LEDs that go on the back of your monitor. Um, exactly, yes. Yeah. Addressable yeah. Uh, LEDs. And that's what makes it important because usually if you want to, you know, glue LEDs, uh, use the LED strip and glue it to the back of your monitor, uh, you have to control it with a third-party device. Or you have to actually hack something together. Um, and this is great, right? Because they've got one for 21 to 25-inch monitors, uh, you know, slash 34, 35-inch ultra-wide monitors, one for 26 to 32-inch monitors. Um, this essentially... Uh, 
you know, uh, is running with the PC. And it's actually, is it actually keeping the lighting in sync with the game, the coloring on the game you're playing? Yeah. And the thing that's about the slick. second generation, yeah, the, there's a control mechanism that's about the size of an SSD that you can either put in an SSD slot on your case, or what I did was actually attach it to the back of the monitor. It's installed in this monitor behind me. And you can kind of see, and there's too much lighting in here to really get the effect, because this is more of a, you're in a dark room, and you're getting that bias lighting against the wall and around your desk and stuff. But you can see this picture I picked, which kind of looks like a Christmas tree in retrospect, has like red and and green lighting where the red and green appear on the screen. And it's it's throwing up the other colors up on the wall. But whatever's on the screen with... I don't really detect a delay, get thrown up on the wall behind the monitor. So I kind of played around with it a little bit, and it, it does work with gaming. They put a faster processor in the second-generation version of the Hue uh, ambient lighting mm-hmm. kit, and seems to work just fine. I mean, it, it relies on the CAM software. So if you're familiar with NZXT's products that have addressable RGBs or any kind of customization... You have to have that software running and you can either choose your own color scheme or you can put on this smart mode. It goes right. through a brief calibration, which is kind of interesting where it's it's turning on lights and then you identify, oh, it's the lower left corner that's on. Okay, and you go through and once you've calibrated the whole thing, then it just starts broadcasting whatever is on your monitor back behind it in, of course, a very low resolution ambient kind of way. It's right. kind of like having a you know, a 30 by 20 LCD behind the screen. And it's, it's doing exactly what's on the screen. So uh, I mean, bias lighting, non-technical explanation of it. When, when you get into, uh, when you get into like high end home theater uh, installations or even not so high end, uh, cause there's a lot of DIY way of doing this, but, 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 you know, bias lighting, when you put a light behind your screen or your monitor, the idea is to make the transition from the bright screen you're looking at and the darkness around it um, to be less kind of brutal on your eyes. And uh, not a big issue for me because I have like a 100-inch screen in my living room that I'm less than 12 feet from. But if you have, say, a 70-inch screen in a dark room, that, you know, blackness to brightness can be really, really brutal. So by putting bias light bias lighting on the back of the monitor and creating sort of a gentler pool or transition from the brightness of the screen to the darkness of the room becomes more immersive. It becomes easier to focus, especially if you have older eyes that don't squeeze as well as they did in the past. Um, It's fun to see. we've, We've seen several monitors playing around with this idea or, or, you know, of sinking the LEDs. Um, I like it. You know, uh, I love the idea of having it, you know, if I have an ocean to have a pool of blue light around the monitor, if I'm in an inferno, there's red or orange light around the monitor. Um, yeah. What's the pricing on it like? Well, it's MSRP is one oh nine ninety nine, So it's not cheap. Okay. I think part, a lot of the cost is that controller with the processing. Right. And of course, you're, you're getting a bunch of light strips in the box because it, it lets you configure it to different panel sizes and shapes. But um yeah, I mean, it, it works really well. It's really easy to implement. There are DIY solutions out there. There are cheaper solutions out there that don't necessarily do the smart, like, ambient lighting thing. If all you're looking for is a biased light, you might want to look elsewhere. But if you like the idea of it, like, being self-contained, it all comes in one box. It's easy to install. It'll install on any monitor. It just uses double-sided, like, adhesive strips that actually, when I peeled them off, did not leave a huge mess. It just kind of peeled the stuff away. So it's... I was impressed by how polished the whole thing was. 
And, you know, it's it's a non-trivial investment to throw $110 at your monitor, but it will take any monitor and turn it into what we saw like a decade ago with the Philips Ambilight right. stuff. So that exact concept, which is what they were doing, they were doing, you know, processing and putting whatever was on the monitor that was creating the diffuse glow behind it and matching the colors and stuff. So it's an interesting product. It is an interesting product. And I don't think given the time it takes to do a DIY version of this, uh, particularly inappropriately priced. And hey, you're probably going to sit on your monitor for the next five years unless you're leaving it running with a screensaver 24-7, in which case you're going to be minimizing <laughs> the life of your monitor. Just want to get that out there again. By reducing the power, you know, you're going to you you're going to drop the output of those LEDs by 50% by running it uh 24/7 for 3 years, and that's considered the death knell for a monitor when it's 50% less bright than when you bought it. Um you know, don't leave it running 24-7. I just want to say that seven or eight more times just to be obnoxious. Um, but I don't know. I, I, 110 isn't cheap, but I think uh, given how long most people will be able to use this and the fact that it doesn't require a whole lot of DIY hacking. I mean, okay, you got to glue the LEDs. You know, you have to peel the strip and glue the LEDs. But beyond that, compared to a lot of the stuff we've seen on the DIY uh, solutions, which I, a word I try to avoid, um, this makes it pretty uh, pretty less painless. Um, <laughs> five gigabyte SSDs are old news. Seven gigabits per second is where it's at in Q2 2020. What on earth are you talking about, sir? Okay, so you know those cute little PCIe Gen 4 drives that all use this Fizon controller, right. the E16 controller. Hitting five gigabytes per second, I guess it's moderately impressive. I'm, I'm not better... It's it's fine. They can have their five gigabytes per second. But next year, Fizon changes the game. Their PS5018-E18, which we will just refer to as the E18 controller, uh -huh. will supersede the E16. And it doesn't double performance, but it's getting closer to the limits of what you could possibly do on PCIe 4. And we, you know, really? 3.5 gigabytes per second is about as fast as you get on Gen 3 by 4. You know, 3,500, 3,600, somewhere in there, megabytes per second. This is rated for up to 7,000 megabytes per second, so 7 gigabytes a second. So that's pretty much double. And it's doing this with far less power than the E16. That's one of the, okay. the interesting things about this to me because that's a 6-watt part, if I remember correctly. This is only a 3-watt part being produced on TSMC's 12-nanometer process. So it's going to have far, far better power consumption and far less heat dissipation. It'll be easier to implement. I could even see this being put into notebooks where the current E16 stuff is absolutely a desktop enthusiast part, big heat sinks, 6 watts. I'm not sure exactly what the TDP is. It's somewhere between 10 and 15 watts uh, dissipation, I think. So kind of similar to what your your X570 chipset is doing. Although can't be that high or it would need active cooling. But it's just fascinating to me to look at this. It, the the rapid improvement from Fizon to they they were first to market with the E16. And in some ways, it's not really any better than their previous controllers because, yes, those straight line speeds are fast. You can hit five gigabytes per second approximately if you're just doing a straight sequential read. Writes are a little bit lower. 
And random is where it gets down back into basically high-end PCIe Gen 3 territory where we talk internally about what what would happen if like Samsung came out with one of these Gen 4 drives. Because then you'd really start to see probably they've always pushed the envelope with NVMe and just seeing how far they could go with those random reads and writes and the stuff that you're really doing on a regular basis with your with your computer. So unless you're doing a lot of loading where you could somehow take advantage of it, Gen 4 drives are sort of an interesting tech demo of what you could do with total throughput. But for average users, just getting a fast Gen 3 drive is probably more than enough. This is where it starts to get really fascinating to me because we're talking up to a million IOPS random read-write performance, according to their specs. It's just ridiculous. Like 1,200 megatransfers per second per channel up to eight channels, 32 CEs, and capacities of up to eight terabytes from this controller, where the the current E16 is offered in, I think, one and two uh, terabyte models. So this is probably going to be a very, very high end. And, And some of these coming out if they, if we even see the eight terabyte models that'll be insane but just a quarter to 2020 so we've got to wait till about the middle of next year to see these shipping but it's kind of a huge leap forward from Faison here this is not going to matter to me at all until i've secured a 570 motherboard so i you i have plenty feel... of time you have plenty of time it's q2 2020 <laughs> yeah just q2 2020 and i hope by then I hope by then, Patrick, you've finally, finally bought the Ryzen processor. I mean, oh, I will have bought a new Ryzen processor long before that. Okay, uh, I hope I so. Bought a 570 motherboard will be an entirely different question. Oh, um, <laughs> while we're talking about next generation performance, uh, something you can actually buy today. I've been playing around with some um, um, 10 gigabit NICs from a Quantia, and uh, they gave me a heads up this week. They're actually running a back to school sale. Uh, if you've been thinking about buying a 10 gigabit NIC, or if you're kind of if you had no idea there was a 10 gigabit NIC, uh, I've been playing around with with benchmark performance on them, um, looking at what that does in terms of being able to transfer data from a server uh, to your desktop. Hint: um, uh, you start running into the limitations of the devices connected uh, inside of the computer, um, but that's a that's a conversation for another day. But uh, they actually have a really uh, like a 15% off deal, and if you click on something like the uh, the Aquantia Action 10 gig 10G gaming NIC, uh, which supports uh, so many different speed levels, right? 10G, 5G, 2.5G, 1G, 100 megabits per second. Uh, in other words, it's backwards compatible if you're not running a 10G network or you don't have access to a 10G hub. Um, you can get a 15% off. You know, if you 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 have to click on the coupon link underneath, uh, or I should say right next to the add to cart button. So yeah, if you're watching the video right now, there it is. There's a coupon, which is a pretty healthy discount. Yeah. Yeah. So now we just need affordable. We need affordable switches now. That's the next frontier. Please, Aquantia or someone, $500 is not really tenable. Although actually I think that I've seen them for under 300 perhaps. Yeah, you're you're some talking switches. about like Netgear has some unmanaged 10 gig switches. Um, when you start getting into where it'll have like one or two 10G ports, uh, if you yeah. want lots and lots of 10G switches or 10G ports on a switch, 
Um, I'm looking at maybe 500 at the entry level on that. And but actively cooled and beastly. It depends. We're, but yes, it, we're spoiled to going to Amazon and buying a, a Netgear, you know, eight port gigabit switch for like seventeen dollars. Right. I, I just want that to be ten gig. Why is that so hard? Why can't why can't they sell me a twenty dollar ten giggy switch? You know, <laughs> I guess I've got to wait about ten years so it's a commodity part like uh, gigabit. Yeah, I was going to say there's that whole silly. It's not a commodity part yet. Um, uh, nope, that one's not actually currently available. Hold on. You know, as exciting as it is for the audience to listen or watch us <laughs> attempt to find things on Amazon, I'm going to move on to the next thing. Uh, as soon as we have a sub $200 10 gig switch, I'll be the first one to let you know. But uh, that's a conversation for another day. Um, this is kind of cruel but desperately needed uh, loot box odds. Congress yeah. has spoken. <laughs> <laughs> the FTC well, not- was looking into it. Uh, and and look, they did, and changes are being made. Preemptive changes, in fact, I think. Is uh, who yeah. is Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo? They're going to say if you're selling randomized loot boxes, or then you have to provide the odds to consumers. They want transparency. Hmm. So, I mean, that's only. I guess that's a good thing. I guess E E A, Activation Activision Blizzard, Bandai Namco, etc., Bethesda, Bungie. A lot of other major publishers are going to be disclosing loot box odds as well. That was an update. So by the end of 2020, so by the end of next year, it'll be commonplace to see odds. Because you're really, you're gambling. So are you going to pay for a microtransaction if it's a one in 1,000 chance? You know, then it's, how lucky do you feel? How much money do you want to spend? You're desperate to get the box. (laughs) Like, will you buy the 99 cent microtransaction 100 times? To get your loot box, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to touch that one. Let's just say I, I think giving the odds, I, I think the odds should be on every table game in Las Vegas. <laughs> no, no, that's why there are no there are no windows. They provide you with uh, free beverages, and they don't disclose the odds. It's there's a system there. It's it's working quite well for them. Well, the system is to keep you in your seat. Uh, yes. For as long as possible without you being aware of the passage of time. That's why the HVAC systems are so good. And as you pointed out, there's no line of sights in almost all casinos where you can actually see that the sun has set or the sun has risen. Um, they also tend to staff uh, the same gender and ethnicity at uh, dealer tables. At least they used to uh, when an acquaintance of mine uh, worked as a pit boss in Atlantic City a long time ago. Uh, they are nefarious and very good at combing the money out of your pockets, which, oddly enough, seems to be a problem with loot boxes. <laughs> with that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, our concern about loot boxes aside, generally speaking, we talk to you about performance of desktop hardware, laptops, mobile devices. Obviously, we got real excited about phones and the cameras inside of them today. If you've got a question, do us a favor, tweet at Patrick Nord or at Sebastian Peek. And if you want more of this show, this show is Twitch. 
This week in compute, computer, this week in computer hardware, twit.tv slash twitch is the website, which has all of the older episodes and links to subscribe. Or you can just go in your favorite podcatcher and search for this week in computer hardware or twitch. And you should find us. And if not, let us know and we'll do our best to make sure it's as easy as possible for you to listen to the show or watch the show each and every week. I'm Patrick Norton. You can find more of me next week at avexcel.com, A-V-E-X-C-E-L.com, or, of course, right back here at This Week in Computer Hardware. And the, the nice young man from Michigan is Sebastian Peake, and you can find his work over at pcper.com, including his excitement about that NZXT ambient lighting system, and I suspect at any moment more and more CPU and GPU reviews until his eyes are literally bleeding from the pain of benchmarking. Yes, that's my goal. Yeah. I want Sebastian's eyeballs <laughs> no. to bleed from the benchmarking. Please no, please no. <laughs> July was a difficult month, and uh, I I'm alive. It's over. Uh, AMD would like it very much if I were to review the 3600X and the 3400G they sent over. I will get to that. Uh, and some X570 stuff is coming. We have a couple enterprising people working on some reviews for us. But uh, this system behind me has been occupying quite a bit of my time because I was a noob when it came to water cooling loops. So if you're listening, that doesn't make any sense. I, I'm I'm pointing to a, a completed loop. My first liquid cooling loop, my second. My, I, my first, I disassembled. I didn't like it. I didn't have the, the the order that I wanted. I put it all back together again last night. I was up till about 2 o'clock in the morning working on this, which uh, was a terrible life choice, by the way, because I had to get up <laughs> first thing in the morning with my son. My wife went to work, and I actually, in all the excitement of putting this together, when I finally got to bed, I couldn't sleep. So then I sat up till 4 o'clock in the morning watching YouTube videos until I finally passed out. So, you know, the, 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 the staying up late to build it was was the first bad life choice. Then you cascaded that error by staying up until four in the morning when your body physically exhausted hit the ground. You know, you probably woke up with keyboard face. And the third mistake was making those first two decisions while forgetting the fact <laughs> that your child, your own personal Terminator, would start howling at the ass crack of dawn. Um, it's, it's, it's to the point now where he's almost four. He comes up to the bed and just like, Dad. Dad, up. Dad, get up. Dad, he's pulling on my hand like, in a minute, I'll get up in a minute. Dad, up, now. Like, uh, after so many minutes of this, I can no longer sleep through it. So, Yeah, it's funny how that works. My uh, oldest used to leap onto the bed and jump, often landing knee first on parts of me that did not need <laughs> knees driven into them. But it was an effective way to get me up and to get him breakfast. Uh, yeah. Once the howling and pain had subsided. If you're a parent, you can relate to this. If you're not a parent, you're probably wondering why anyone would have children. And that's a question you'll have to ask or answer more accurately for yourself. Uh, for tech questions, do us a favor. Again, tweet uh, at Sebastian Peaker, at Patrick Norton, or email twitch at twit.tv. And we should actually get that email. Uh, and if it bounces back, let us know. And we will uh, figure out a way to make it happen. Seriously, do us a favor, subscribe. If you haven't, just search for This Week in Computer Hardware in your favorite podcatcher. And you should do that for all of your favorite Twit podcasts. Thank you all so much for listening and watching. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. And I'm Sebastian Peake. We'll catch you next week on Twitch. <laughs> <laughs>